All right, awesome. If you guys have a Bible with you, uh, if you'd open it to Psalm, the book of Psalms, which is right smack in the middle of your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the text is in your order of worship, in your bulletin. It's going to be good for you to have it in front of you, though, uh, as with all things. That may be new to you. If, you're, if, if maybe you're new to church or maybe you're just new to this kind of church, um, we believe that Christian preaching is... Uh, is, is a kind of a fundamental thing. It's a hallmark of what we do. Um, and it's not just a, a time for us to get some feel-good messages or, or um, I don't know, hear some stories that warm our hearts. It's a time for us to actually learn, um, grow, to hear from God, to hear from um, God's Word, to hear it um, taught to us and, and explained in such a way that not only um, do we get what, what the Word is for us that morning, but it helps us to read it throughout the week. And so, uh, you know, if, if you've been in churches where um, the guy stands up and he, he's done in like 10 minutes, sorry. Yeah, you're, you're not, not this morning. So uh, we're, in, we're in Psalm 125 this morning. Um, and, and as we've gone through this series that, we're, that is on the Psalms of Ascent, if you remember, if, if you don't, that's okay, I'm going to explain it. The Psalms are a, of Ascent are a, a group of 15 Psalms in the middle of the Psalter that is, is there to be a set of, of songs that you would sing if you were Jewish as you went from wherever you lived to Jerusalem to the major feasts that would happen year after year. There was three, four of them. And you would go up, and as you're going, these were meant to be things that you would sing. And so they are here to help us know what it means to be on pilgrimage. Because the fundamental teaching of the Christian, uh, of the New Testament, of the Bible, and of the Christian faith is that as Christians, we are on pilgrimage. We are not yet where we are made to be. And you know this because you feel it. So let's see what the scriptures have for us today. If you'd stand, that's our habit here in honor of God's word. Psalm 125 is only five verses. This is God's word. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, no one needs to hear from me. What we need is to hear from you, myself included. And so we pray that you would speak to us by your word, by your spirit, you would open our hearts and minds that we might receive with joy what you have for us today. Lord, let Jesus and everything he has done come to the forefront and everything else, including the one who speaks, fall to the wayside. For it is from your lips that come the words of eternal life. So speak, Lord. We're listening. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. The image... Um, it's kind of burned into my head, though the details are a little fuzzy, uh, but, but the experience will stay forever. Um, it was after worship here, and as most of you know, within minutes after worship is over, this room returns, reverts back to its original intent, right? And what I mean is, it's a gym, and so within minutes, we have multiple groups of children, because we have multiple groups of children chasing each other around this room, right? Uh, parents find that both 
uh, disheartening, terrifying, and also comforting because you know where they're running, but they're going to run into something. Anyway, uh, on this particular Sunday, um, I'm watching these kids kind of run around the gym, and uh, there's this group, and there's this little, there's this young boy, and I'm not going to say his name because that would be embarrassing, uh, but like any smart boy, he knew that as he's getting chased, the only hope is to get to base, right? You have to get to base, because you can't run forever, and so you have to get to where you're going. And so base, um, he, he's, he's running after base, and then all of a sudden I get rocked with the impact of this small boy as he runs into my leg, grabbing it like this, because he had reached base. And then his, his eyes look up, and he sees mine staring down, and suddenly he realizes, I'm not his father. And he, he reverts at that point into a look of terror, as he is, as, and he begins sobbing because what he thought brought him safety was exposed as a mistake. I thought this was base. That dude ain't base. And we laugh at that, right? But in some ways, all of us are trying to get to base. And we all find ourselves gripping the wrong leg. And so what we're going to see this morning, what this text really draws out to us is simply this. That what we are desperately seeking the Lord has already secured for us. What we're desperately seeking, the Lord has already secured for us. And so if if, uh, you're a note taker, there's an outline in your bulletin. If not, don't worry about it. I'll I'll keep you on task, okay? So let's let's get, get started in this. So if you'll remember, as we've been talking about these psalms, it's very important to understand the structure of how these psalms are laid out. They are laid out in groups of three. And this is the end of the second group of three. The first is laying this some kind of situation of distress. Remember the one from this one from two weeks ago was, I've had more than enough of the scorn of the proud, right? I've had more than enough. And we talked about what it means to have more than enough. My soul is just, just fed up. And then the second psalm in that cycle is the one that talks about the Lord's presence on the way. So Kent last week talked about the fact that if the Lord had not been on our side, um, all of our enemies would have swallowed us. But the Lord is our our faithful, the one who is dealing with our distress. And the last one is the last psalm in these cycles. um, We should expect a measure of arrival, a measure of change from the original distress. So look down at verse 1 in Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. Okay, let me break this down. So first and foremost, um, the, the state of the people that he's talking about are those that trust. Like if, if distress was described first a couple of weeks ago in this state of patient waiting, right? As the, as, the hand of the ser- or as the eyes of the servant wait on the hand of their master, so our eyes look to you, O Lord. That's that patient waiting, and now we see the results of that. It's this concept of trust. But I want us to notice something. He says those who trust in the Lord, not those who believe in the Lord, not those who obey the Lord, those who trust in him. Not that belief is bad or obedience is bad, but this is bigger. It is trust. And you're going to hear this almost every week, but it's trust in the Lord, right? And you remember, though, when we talk about it, that's a, that's a name as it's all capital letters. It's the divine name of God. It's the covenant name of God. And that brings with it a story of this God who reaches down into those whose lives are a mess, who we've messed things up. And he comes in and he says, I'm going to make this better. And so when you hear that, when you see that, uh, all capital letters, Lord in the Old Testament, it is not just a name. It's bringing a story. 
And that story has to inform how we're understanding this. Those who trust in the Lord who makes covenant, those who trust in the one who initiates through grace this relationship of rescue with us. If you trust in him, you will not be moved. You'll be like Mount Zion. Okay, Mount Zion. You hear this all the time, right? If you read the Old Testament at all, or even if you come to church, or even if you drive past churches, Mount Zion something something, right? Mount Zion is the mountain upon which Jerusalem is built. Okay? Jerusalem is on a mountain. It became, it became known as Mount Zion. Um, and so when they talk about Mount Zion, it's talking about this mountain upon which God has built, well, God has claimed this city called Jerusalem, where he is present. And so what we have here, take us back to ninth grade grammar class, is a simile. You are like a mountain. And so we have to, poetry, um, it, poetry intends for us to do more than just kind of read it and go, I'm a mountain. No, no, no. I'm like a mountain. Those who trust in the Lord are like a mountain. And what are the connections? Well, in particular, this is talking about the fact that you cannot be moved. Duh. Right? Like mountains can't be moved. You don't ever see them just kind of pushed over, moved to the side. You know, I know Jesus said you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. I'm still working. Apparently a mustard seed is just too big for me, probably too big for you. Okay? Um, this is the idea that if, if you trust in the Lord, you are secure. Nothing is going to move you. It has to do with security. So what began with this idea of more than enough that I'm fed up, totally fed up with the world and the way it is and my experience in it, both internally and externally. I'm fed up with it. Then move to the fact that the, the Lord was on our side. Now with that trust, that as I waited and saw his provision, now with that trust, I cannot be moved. So what I want you to imagine is those who are coming on the way. And they are, maybe they're coming up from, from, uh, from Bethlehem. Okay, Bethlehem's in the south of Jerusalem. They're heading up north. Maybe they're coming from the, from the north, but everywhere is up when you're going to Jerusalem. It's kind of like Stanton. You know, everywhere, everywhere is up. Anyway, but you're, you're coming up to Jerusalem. And as you're coming up, you look in the impressiveness of this mountain, the city that's on it, and that is what you are like, trusting in the Lord. But the security, like I said, has a... Well, it's predicated on something. It's predicated on trust. We'll get more to that in a second. Now look down at verses 2 and 3. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. The mountains surrounding a city, okay, provide protection. Why? Because armies have a hard time going over them. And this, again, this is a dub, but when we're, when, when we're reading the Old Testament, even the New Testament, we have to remember this was not written to us. It was written for us, but not to us. And so we have to go back and kind of think through what, is, what does that mean? Well, if you have mountains surrounding your city, that city is pretty safe. It's not to say that an army can't get there. Obviously, the Romans did and made a mess of things. But it means that you can, there's going to be limited access. You are protected. And he says, just in the same way as mountains surrounding this city, so the Lord surrounds his people. And the story of Scripture, there's so many stories like this in the Old Testament. So many. Maybe you've heard some of them. First you have like um, the situation of the Red Sea, right? Moses comes out of Egypt with God's people. They make it to the Red Sea. They can't go any further. This pillar of fire and pillar of cloud that had 
was in front of them, leading them into this place, all of a sudden moves. It moves behind them and starts to protect them from, from the, the advance of this army until the Red Sea is parted and they can move through. Or think about, uh, there's a prophet named Elijah. Elijah has a servant. Elijah's been prophesying against the kings. Generally gets you killed, right? If you say bad things about the kings. I mean, we're seeing that right now in another part of the world. When you say bad things about the king and he doesn't like it, you end up on the chopping block. And so his servant is, is sitting with Elijah and he sees armies coming out and he's like, Elijah, uh, we're in trouble. And Elijah goes, no, no, no. There's more with us than are with them. He's like, what are you talking about? It's, it's you and me, man. It's you and me. There's an army out here. And Elijah prays and says, open his eyes. And there's chariots of fire. Ah, that's where that came from. There's an army surrounding, an angelic army surrounding with chariots of fire. Or if you keep going further, there was a king by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a king in Judah, the southern kingdom of, of Israel after they broke off. He's king in Judah, and, and Assyria had invaded, taken over the northern kingdom and was advancing. It was a bad dude by the name of Sennacherib. And he's heading down into um, to Jerusalem, surrounds the city. Hezekiah is praying because he's like, we can't beat them. And all of a sudden, they wake up the next morning, and the entire army's dead. Well, not the entire army. The vast majority of it, so much so that the ruler of the greatest empire at the time said, I'm out, peace out. And he left with the rest of his armies and never came back. The stories of God surrounding his people with protection are all over the place in Scripture. And so this is just reiterating what we, we would already think if we, if we read these stories. And then what we get at verse 3 is the fact that what you may see now the situation in which God's people are kind of ruled over by wickedness, that it's not going to be like that for long because God is the protector of his people. Okay? With me? All right, let's get into the process now. Look, look down at verse 4. How's God going to do this? He says this, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. Now, we need to explain the word good for a minute. It sounds like that should be a no-brainer, right? It's good. However, when we think good, there is a general moral timbre to that. That may or may not have anything to do with what the scripture means. So in the original, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. In the original, this means do what is pleasing to those who are pleasing to you. Okay? Do what is pleasing to those who are pleasing to you. Well, that raises the question, doesn't it? Who's pleasing to God? Because if this means that doing the pleasant thing is what is said before, to provide security and to provide protection for God's people, then, and, and listen, I, I know not everyone in this room is a Christian, but most of us are, and so we should think, like, I like security and protection. How do I get that? No, it's easy. Be pleasing to God. Just be pleasing to God. Okay? We good? We can move on? No, probably not, because what does it mean to be pleasing to God? Is it, is it this abstracted moral goodness, right, that we come up with? We decide this is what, this is, I, I'm being nice, which generally in America, when we talk about abstracted moral goodness, we mean being nice. Is it, is, is it uh, being religious? Is it showing up at church on Sunday, making sure you put a little something in that basket as it comes through? Is it being conservative, See, this is what we tend to believe, but there are plenty of examples of people in Scripture who are all of those things. 
As a matter of fact, some of the folks that Jesus had the biggest beef with were very morally good, very religious, and fairly conservative. And yet, he had the biggest beef with them. They were called Pharisees. Here's what we know. What does it mean to be pleasing, with God, to, pleasing to God? Here's what we know. We actually have God telling someone that they were pleasing to him. Awesome. Okay, so let's look at that. Well, it has to do with a baptism. It has to do with uh, the, John the Baptist. And it has to do with this other guy, John the Baptist's cousin, whom he baptized. And that guy was named Jesus. And Jesus shows up to be baptized, and when he does, the heavens, in the, in the Gospel of Mark, it says the heavens are ripped open. I don't know what that looked like. Probably pretty freaky. It, the heavens are ripped open. A dove comes down, or the Holy Spirit comes down looking like a dove. So he's fluttering down. And then the voice of God the Father comes out and says, this is my son in whom I am very pleased. Okay, so there we go. Apparently, if we want to be pleasing to God... Just be like Jesus. Takers? Anybody on that? Anybody like, I got this? Anybody thinking to themselves like, yeah, yeah, I'll put my life up against Jesus' life. Look, and I know, I know some of us in here probably don't know a ton about Jesus, at least in the terms of details, right? We're in the valley. Everybody knows the name Jesus. We probably have a couple things, but like details. Like, what did he do? What, like, let, me, let me fill you in. He lived his entire life outward. He lived for God and for other people. He was constantly in dependence on God, living in such a way that he um, kept not just, not just the law as God gave it, but the motivations to keep it as well. And so not just his behaviors, but his heart situation was set towards God. Not just on Sundays or Saturdays, you know, Saturday back then. Not just on those days, but every day. Every second of every day. Fully. Perfect. That's what it means to be pleasing to God. Takers? We're good? Let's keep going. Let's look at the opposite. Look down at verse 5. But to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Turn aside. This is one of those, again, this is, a, this is a poetic image. This is the idea that there's a path, right? Jesus talked about that path. He called it the straight and narrow, right? You're on, and we get that. You're on the straight and narrow. It's the narrow way. You know, it's, it's, you're on a way, and then you turn away from it, which means you're on the path, and then you get off of the path by your crooked ways. And God says, you're going to be led away with evildoers, Goodness, all right, so what are evildoers? Well, scripturally, someone who does evil is someone who does things that aren't pleasing to God. I know that in our sense, we have this gradation, right? You have, you have really good, and then you got pretty good, and then you got trying hard, and then you got the guy who's like, eh, and then you got, hmm, I mean, not the worst, but, and then you got, like, Hitler, right? And we have these gradations, and generally when we have gradations, what we do is we place ourselves slightly to the, well, in, in my case, slightly to the right of the person that we go, I mean, I'm not great, but I'm better than, eh. Or maybe you're really good, and you're like, I'm not great, but I'm better than tries hard, 
right? Or maybe you're, maybe you're not. Maybe you're like, I mean, I'm no Hitler. I mean, I'm, I'm not great. I, my life has been a train wreck, but I'm no Hitler, right? We, we do that. The scriptures doesn't seem to do that, does it? It's either those that are pleasing to God or those that are doing things that aren't. And, and, and this says that you're going to lead them away with the, the evildoers. When in Scripture, when it talks about being led away, that is an image of something in the Bible called exile. And exile is something that has been happening ever since the garden. Think with me. Maybe, you don't, maybe there's not much about the Bible you know, but you probably know the story. Adam and Eve, right? You probably think they ate an apple. It was not an apple. We don't know what it was. It was a fruit. Maybe it was an apple. I don't know. But it was a fruit. And after that, God said, God both says, I'm going to fix your problem, but says, but you can't be here anymore until I've fixed it. And so they are exiled from the garden. And then as the scriptures keep going on, you have more and more talk of this exile. The exile is going to be um, the greatest of God's, uh, the, of God's uh, attempts to get his people's attention. We call those curses, covenant curses. So that when his people have just totally walked away from him over and over and over again. They are taken into exile, away from the land they were made for. The New Testament links that idea of exile with the concept of eternal judgment, something we call hell. Jesus did that. And So what does it mean to be led away with the evildoers? It means to receive the just consequences of your doing of evil. Here's what I want us to see. There's only two kinds of people in this passage. There's the pleasing and the not. That gradation that we all love. I love it too. Listen, I love it. We love to judge ourselves based on those around us. We love it because we will always find someone who's not doing it as well as we will. We are. We always, you know, we go, well, I mean, that guy is, so I'm not going to judge myself according to him. I'm going to go with this person. But in the scriptures, the only person to, to kind of measure yourself against is not your neighbor. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's too bad about that. But it's not your kids. It's, it, it's Jesus. And so there's only two categories. And that creates a little bit of a problem, doesn't it? Well, in light of that, let's talk, shall we? And I don't just mean about this passage. I mean about us. I mean about you and me. You see, the desire for security and protection are not biblical desires. They're human ones. Like, we all have that. There's not a person in this room who's not like, you know what? I'm fine without security. I'm cool with chaos 24-7. I don't need anything in my life to be stable. No one, no, I, I know a lot of you are really comfortable with chaos, but you're not that comfortable with chaos, right? We want security. The problem is not our desire for security, the desire for protection. It's where we seek to find it. So where are you looking for it? Where are you trusting this morning for that? For some of us, let me list a few options. Maybe you'll connect with one of them. For some of us, it's our bank account, right? It's our bank account. It's our money that makes us safe. When things get low there, we start getting a little nervous, when the, when the resources start to dry up a little bit, we start to get a little nervous, a little panicky. When we're forced into spending on something we didn't plan for, we get nervous. When the market crashes, eliminates our savings, we panic. And we will do anything to make sure that our finances are stable. 
because that is what we know will keep us secure. Right? That's not you. For others, it's not, it's not money. It has to do with our planning, our decision-making. Like it's, it, that's, that's what gets us, which is another way of saying us, but that's fine. You know, we may not believe we're the smartest person in the world, but if we're going to be secure, it's because we've made the right decisions. Like I've made the responsible choices. I've done the right things. When something comes up that we couldn't foresee or didn't plan on, we generally freak out and then shame ourselves. Why didn't you see that coming? You're so stupid, right? We will do anything to make sure that we have made the right decision because good planning is what keeps us secure. It's not you either, okay. Um, for still others, it's having everyone like us. I think everyone like us. Money is all well and good. Planning is okay. But you cannot feel secure if you know someone is not happy with you. They're angry with you. You see, if they're angry, they might abandon us. And so we're terrified of being alone. And so we will do anything to keep people happy. Anything. Because being accepted is what keeps us secure. Still not you. Okay, let's keep going then. Uh, maybe it's finding security and being respected. Maybe it's being respected as being smart or maybe being respected as a hard worker or really skilled or what have you. If you're not respected, you're nothing. So you do anything you can to pretend you know the answers, pretend you can do the skill, pretend you have all of this knowledge to avoid failure because that is what makes you secure. Okay, not you too. All right, well, we'll keep going then. I mean, there's got to be a few more. How about, how about being the good one? Maybe what makes you secure is knowing that you're the good one. You grew up as the good kid, and deep down you still wonder, are people going to be around? Am I going to be okay if I'm not the good kid? So you perform, and you perform, and you perform, and you hide your faults, share just enough to make you seem deep, but work hard to keep that image up because you're terrified if you're not good, you're going to be nothing. So you do anything you can to be good because that's what makes you secure. Now I want you to notice something in all of these examples. Every one of them is about what you do. Every one of them. Your ability, your decisions, your intelligence, your morality, your money... But this passage says the security that makes you like a mountain, unable to be moved, doesn't come from you. Do you know why? It's because so long as you are the one who provides security for you, your security can only go as far as you can. So long as you're the, old, you're the one that provides security for you, your security will only go as far as you can go. Here's the real problem. You see, you think when you serve these things that they are working for you. Nah, they're not. You're working for them. You're working for them. See, so long as security is what you are serving, you will never have security. It'll have you. But you won't have it. And you know this. You know this deep down because no matter how much money you have, no matter how much money you have, how much money you make, you're still scared. No matter how many awesome decisions you make, you're still worried it's the next one that's going to get you. No, how, no matter how many people love you, it's the one that doesn't that freaks you out. 
Not all those that do. No matter how good a reputation you have for being good or smart, you're always worried that that someone's going to come in your life who's going to supplant you and be like, it's the smarter one, the more skilled one, the one who can get it done better. And that is because you weren't made to provide your own security. You were made for dependence on God. Those who trust in the Lord are secure like the mountains. So what do we do? What do we do in that? Well, the answer is actually in this passage. There's a secured security for us. And there's, there's two things in the here that, we re, that, that are in reality very much in conflict with one another. Okay? But let's look at this. The first is the concept of trust in the Lord. We have to trust in him. That he's going to provide these things for us. And then what's in conflict with that is verses 4 and 5. Where the Lord is providing those for those that are pleasing. And that's it, right? That's the issue. How do we trust that the Lord is going to provide what we need when he, will, when he says that he will, he will do good to someone so unlike us? Pleasing? I'm not pleasing. I know I'm not pleasing. How can I trust the Lord to provide security for me if I can't make the cut? Let me be honest with you about something. That is a question that no other religion can answer. None. Because all of them say it's up to you. And you and I know, Christian or not, in this room, I don't cut it. I can't make the cut. If that's what it is, I can't do it. The only place where you can find an answer for this is Christianity because Christianity finds that answer in Jesus. Jesus was the one who was pleasing. He was it. Like we said, God the Father said it out loud to everyone. He lived a life perfectly in complete trust, complete dependence. Pleasing to the Lord from one, from his first second to his last. But he was also the one who was led away with the evildoers. For you. In our place. He was led away not because of what he did. He was led away because of what we did. What we did. Jesus was led away for sinners, in the place of sinners like you, like me. He was exiled for us. He experienced the judgment of hell on the cross for us. And so when we place our faith, our trust in Jesus, we are united to him. And what that means is that what's true of him becomes true of us. His pleasing life becomes yours. His being led away with the evildoers is yours. So that now he has secured for you what you never could. That is what brings us security. That is why you can trust in the Lord. If you're going to trust in him to give you security and you are resting on your own stuff, I love you. It's not going to work. In fact, I'm going to be willing to bet you say you're trusting in the Lord. But I bet if we scratch the surface a little bit, it's going to be something else under that. It's not going to be a winner on that scratch-off ticket. Look at me. How forgiving is finding security in everyone else's love? Everyone, in your money, in your smarts. When you fail those things, when you make a bad decision, when you make a bad purchase, you run out of money. When, when, when someone is angry at you, you know what happens? All that security melts away. It melts away because those things will not forgive your failures. 
Jesus is the only one who, when you fail him, he loves you. And of course he does, because he loved you when you were failing him. He loved you first. That is the gospel. That is what makes Christianity different. And that is how to be secure, as secure as a mountain. Because what we desperately seek, what we desperately seek is not something you can do. It's something that has been secured for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are in need of you. We don't trust you. We confess that now. In the first Sunday of Lent, we're going to confess. We do not trust you. We do not look to you. We look to everything else, whether we've been a Christian for a few minutes or for decades. We struggle every day to lay our trust in you. And so we ask for that grace to do so. Give us repentance that will lead us to life, whether for the first time or for the first time in the next 10 minutes. Help us to turn away from those false saviors, these false securities, and instead lay that trust in the only one who can do anything about our need, you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.